You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome, everyone. I am Marianne McCarty. If we haven't met, I work as the girls' youth director here at the Advent. And if we haven't met, I'd love to. Um, so let's chat after. Um, let me pray to begin. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for being real, being here with us, being good. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to help us know who we who we are under your care and who you are, most importantly, Lord. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love to read good stories. And for me, the stories I think are good are the ones that help me vividly understand what it's like to live through the situation that's being described. For that reason, I especially love to read about places or times or people who have lived really different lives or through different experiences than I have and put myself in that setting for a while and see what the author wants me to see. The story of Ruth in the Old Testament is one of those good stories. Throughout it, we can see this woman's life in a very different time and place than the one in which we are living. And we can also see ourselves there in various ways. Has this not been a really great series? Who has heard most of the teachings from the classes? Yes, I know, it's been great, right? Each of the women we've studied has shown us different aspects of God's character and the way that God redeems the world through Christ. I'm excited to focus on Ruth's story today. Her story is full of surprising elements. As you read it closely, you can see the characters both acting in surprising ways and responding to each other in surprise. But I think overall in Ruth's story today, we'll see God's continual inclusion of the outsider and God's gracious providence. God's inclusion of the outsider and God's gracious providence. And by providence, I mean God's continual action of grace towards us to sustain our lives. Though even the text alludes to how surprising some of this inclusion and provision is playing out in real time, we shouldn't be surprised to see that what is standard practice for God, subverting the ways of the world and exaltation of the lowly. Where the world excludes, God includes. Where the world keeps score, God gives grace. Where the world tells you to look out for yourself and protect your own, God says to lay down your life in generosity and hospitality. God himself became weak so that by participating in his death, we might live. Through all this is surprising to hear, we can expect this from God. This is who God is, and Ruth's story makes that very plain. So to just locate this story for a little bit, let's look at Matthew 1 to see where we are and how Ruth connects to the women we've heard about so far. So Matthew 1, 2 through 5 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We talked about her. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We talked about her. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. So spoiler alert for part of Ruth's story here. I just told you who ends up together. But I want us to see the connection between Ruth and Rahab. 
This is one generation. God's evident redemption in Rahab's story does not end with only sparing her life from Jericho and her adoption into the family of God. Her faithfulness bears fruit in our story today. So for a little more context, note that Ruth's story occurs during the time of the judges. Last week we found Rahab and Joshua when the Israelites were conquering the promised land. After the tribes settled in their respective districts, the judges ruled over the land for a time. So not tons of time has passed between last week's story when we encountered Rahab and this week with Ruth. So I wish we had time to read the entire story. I think this is good literature. And as someone, like I said, who enjoys good narrative writing, this is really enjoyable to read. There are so many good narrative details and moments where I can feel the mood of the characters and it's really fun. But for time's sake, I'll tell the story and we'll pause at different points to read the text to see what I believe God wants us to understand about God's habit of including the outsider and his gracious providence. So please listen with me. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. There was a family in Bethlehem in Judah who fled to the country of Moab to find a better life. Their names were Elimelech and Naomi, and their sons were Malon and Kilion. Are any bells ringing in your head when you hear from Bethlehem and Judah? This is an alert that this family was in the Messianic clan. So as we're reading the story of God through the wor- and how God works in the world, we pay special attention to this family. What is this family like? How does that tell us about the Messiah? While Elimelech and Naomi and the boys were living in Moab, Elimelech died, and Malon and Kilian married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Now that could have involved many things, but in addition to mixing cultures, which can be very beautiful, it also certainly included mixing religions, which can be sticky, to put it lightly, which is exactly why God had explicitly warned against that in the law. The only details we have about their life together is that they lived in Moab for 10 years before both Malon and Kilian died. So now Naomi is in Moab as a widow, having buried her two sons. In her grief, Naomi decides to move home to Bethlehem. Since her daughters-in-law were in her family, they began the journey with her. They moved back, but Naomi understood they would be moving to a land where they knew no one, with no family except their mother-in-law, probably no money, and to a culture that was unlike their own and where they may not be welcomed. These girls would not be moving to a better life. So in the middle of the journey, Naomi encourages the girls to give up their family loyalty to her and return to their mother's house, hoping they would find new husbands, have children, and ultimately be provided for. Orpah wept and returned to her homeland, but Ruth clung to Naomi. Let's look at Ruth 1, 15 through 19. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. What made Ruth 
choose to stay with Naomi? It's a good question and something the text does not make clear. There could be many reasons. It obviously was a sacrifice. She was committing to a life in a place she did not know with a completely different culture, unlikely to remarry and probably going to experience poverty since the two women had no belonging with a man anymore. But I do think it's significant to notice Ruth's language in this conversation. See how she talks about the God of Israel at the end of this declaration. She does not speak of this God generically, but personally. And she seems to understand elements of who God is. She calls God by name, and she makes a promise that involves herself in God's action when she says, may the Lord deal with me if I leave you. I think the way Ruth relates to God here is not an unintentional, unimportant fact. It gives insight into her understanding and willingness to worship this God. Here she is committing to stay with Naomi, her mother-in-law, but it seems like she's choosing to follow this God she's come to know. I'm really fascinated by this detail and the unknown parts of the story of how Ruth came to understand the God of Israel. Let's keep following her story and see what God does as she moves to Bethlehem. So Naomi returns to Bethlehem. Ruth moves there for the first time, and they're both grieving. Naomi is in such evident grief that she asks her community to call her Mara, which means bitterness. And the text tells us they moved as the barley harvest was beginning. Once they were settled there, Ruth the Moabite, as the text calls her, goes out into the fields surrounding Bethlehem to glean. She was planning to gather the leftover grain behind the harvesters, as was allowed in the law for the poor in the land. This day, unbeknownst to her, Ruth finds herself in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the same family as Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. While she's there, Boaz comes to the field, greets his workers with a blessing, and he notices Ruth, and he asks, Who is she? Who does that lady belong to? And the workers say, She's the Moabite woman who moved here with Naomi from Moab. She's been here all morning. Ruth stood out as a foreigner, and the whole community knew her story. The text highlights Ruth's identity as a, Moab, a Moabite, a non-Israelite, a foreigner, over and over. This is something we as readers are supposed to pay attention to. It's a key part of the story and points to what we're to gather from it. She was a Moabite woman, and that was obvious. Let's see how Boaz responds. In Ruth 2, verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Not only was Ruth a foreigner, she was also poor and living like a poor person. She was not like everyone else in Bethlehem. She had no men in her family to defend or speak for her. And these things, her identity as a woman, a foreigner, and poor, made Ruth extremely vulnerable. It was important for her to make sure she did not get on the wrong side of anyone who would take advantage of her. Boaz explicitly looked out for her, for her safety, and communicated that to her. And Ruth was really surprised by Boaz's kindness to her. She did not expect to be included as a dignified member of society. 
She's so surprised. She asks him, why are you noticing me? Now let's take a minute to remember who Boaz's mother is. We talked about this at the very beginning when we looked at Matthew 1. Does anyone remember? Boaz's mother was Rahab. His mother was also a foreigner. Boaz was raised in a home where someone from outside Israel had come to follow God and be adopted into God's family. Boaz saw the reality, beauty, and centrality of that as part of God's work in the world. I believe this gave him a heightened awareness for the outsider in their midst and an unquestioning obligation to care for them. Boaz knew this is what God is like, that it's completely on brand for God to include the outsider in his family. Boaz had learned this from his mama, and it matters that we teach our communities and children who God is, what God is like, and follow God together. Scripture repeats the story over and over of God including the outsider in his family. Are we not also the outsider adopted into God's family? God brought us in by grace and has made us heirs with Christ. We have been included by love. Who around us are we overlooking or not considering, valuing, protecting, listening to, and serving? Who are we not including because they are the foreigner, the outsider, not the one we expect to be the main character, either figuratively or literally? To the text again, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So Boaz not only notices Ruth's surprising loyalty to Naomi, but he responds with an expectation that God will provide for Ruth. Boaz knows this is who God is and how God acts. This God not only welcomes and values the foreigner, but also provides and cares for them. The God of Israel is a safe refuge for all who come to him, And Boaz understands that applies to Ruth as well. No one is exempt from God's providence. We can only wonder if Ruth really knew this about God before she chose to follow him, but she certainly experiences it now. Ruth's response shows how urgent this provision was. She does not respond about God directly right here, but she does communicate gratitude for the safety Boaz is providing for her. Ruth knows she is at the lowest level of society and therefore most vulnerable. Having her physical needs met was urgent. God's sustaining grace did not fail to be with Ruth as she followed him to Bethlehem. Can we also have faith that God will provide for us and sustain us as we follow him? Boaz gives Ruth a seat at the lunch table and then he tells his workers explicitly to let Ruth glean and not bother her. He even tells them to leave extra grain on the ground for her to gather. He used his position of power and influence to ensure her protection and provision and to set the culture of his fields. This is an essential point as we focus on God's inclusion of the outsider. 
Boaz provided for Ruth because he believed she belonged. It's far too easy or common for us to mentally or verbally affirm what we believe and then fail to act in a way that supports our belief. If we say we welcome the outsider as God does, but we do not extend that welcome concretely, how firm might that conviction really be? This is a really small illustration of this idea, but the other day as I was just sitting at my kitchen table, my roommate mentioned she was going to exercise. Mm, I'm jealous, I said, and continued sitting. And it immediately hit me, if I'm not willing to get up and join her, how jealous am I really of what she's about to get out of exercise? Do I really want what she has right now? Obviously, I can assent in my mind that I know I would feel good if I exercised, but that did not translate to putting any action behind it. What do we profess that we're not acting on? Who do we say we include and love but are not defending, welcoming, protecting, and providing for? This is what the world is watching. How we follow up our words with actions communicates more about what we believe than what we claim. How we act communicates something to the world about what God is like. It matters that we embody what we believe. God did and does. Ruth's story not only exalts God's inclusion of the unlikely, but highlights God's providence. Even the laws which God gave to Israel stood to provide for the outsider, the unlucky and the vulnerable. Two of those are on display in this story. Ruth gleaned behind the workers of the field, picking up the leftover barley, since she had no husband or father to provide for her. The law explicitly commanded the statute to provide for the poor. In the next part of the story, we see the kinsman redeemer statute, which established that family members should care for their destitute relatives. Let's return to the narrative. When Ruth returned from the field that evening, she had a surprising haul of grain. She fed her mother-in-law, and Naomi understood Ruth had been treated really well. She asked all about her experience, how did it go, where were you? She was super curious as to where the Moabite woman could have found such evident favor. Ruth said, I gleaned in a field belonging to a guy named Boaz. And Naomi said, Boaz? You are kidding. That's so-and-so's son. Yeah, you know, his daddy and Elimelech were cousins. We're all from the same family. Bless his heart. And she quickly gave Ruth advice to continue to glean in that place where she had been offered protection because both women knew how essential and not guaranteed that was. Naomi understood, likely more than Ruth at this point, that Ruth wandering into Boaz's field was no small accident. Naomi knew Boaz was a near relative of theirs through her late husband, and therefore he could provide even more provision for them than what he had so far. Leviticus 25, 25 and following explains the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's like the concept we saw with Tamar when we read her story in the past, after her first, her first husband died without giving her children. The husband's brother was supposed to provide an heir for his brother's name and thereby also provide for his widow. This law also includes taking over the land which belonged to the relative, and the nearest relative to the late husband received first dibs on the land. Naomi knew all this, and when she saw how God had already provided for Ruth and her, 
and saw this signpost to potentially even more steady provision, she began to relate to God as benevolent and caring once again, though she had previously thought God had nothing but bitterness to give her. At this point in the story, I can feel both women exhale in a bit of relief. Their shoulders relax as they know they will have food and a measure of physical protection. These things are most essential for the outsider at the bottom of society. These things we take for granted are not guaranteed to the unlucky and the unlikely on the fringes. Life goes on like this for a little while for the ladies, and then Naomi gets to work bringing about her plan to find more permanent provision for Ruth. She hasn't forgotten about her initial reasoning that Ruth should not even come to Bethlehem in the first place. They have no family, and Ruth will remain childless, meaning unprotected and vulnerable in her old age as if things progress as they are. Chapter 3 in the book of Ruth tells us the provocative story of Ruth following Naomi's strategic guidance and basically proposing to Boaz, asking him to provide for their family as the kinsman redeemer. He apparently is honored by that and desires to do so, but he knows there's a closer relative who has first dibs on redeeming Elimelech's property. So he says, let me work on this, I'll get back with you. There really are so many interesting points that we're skipping today for time and clarity's sake, but I'd encourage you to read this short book and see for yourself. At the end of this scene, we're left with Naomi trusting that Boaz would keep his word to Ruth. So look at chapter four with me. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down, just as the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. He was assembling a suitable council following the protocol of their day for a decision and an action of this kind. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, do so. But if you'll not, tell me so I'll know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and then I'm next in line. I'll redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It was a costly thing. It was costly to care for the outsider, to accept her and her children into his family. They would be on his dime, and who knows how things would play out in the future with their inheritance. This guy weighed the cost and decided he would rather protect his own money and property than to care for the outsider. It would just cost too much. God set up this law in order to care for the vulnerable. And this guy, nameless, maybe so that we see ourselves in him, decided he didn't want to do it. He did not want to risk his money while witnessing God's heart for the unlucky. It wasn't worth it to him to take the opportunity to image God in this way, if it would threaten his estate. May that not be true of us. 
So the men publicly and officially work out that Boaz will be the kinsman redeemer and take Ruth into his household. He might now have a family like the one he grew up in, a foreign mother and an Israelite father following God together. And verses 11 and 12 of Ruth 4, the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who we've studied, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Though the off- through the offspring of the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Wow. See the mention of almost all the women we've studied so far. See to the blessing of this community over the righteousness of including Ruth. And see the affirmation that this is honoring to God. And see the foreshadowing of, that, of all that will come from this. God does bless their family. God gives them a son named Obed. And the entire community praises God on behalf of Naomi and Ruth, honoring this Moabite woman. The entire community recognize the abundant provision to the outsider to the grieving women given by God and they rejoiced in that on their behalf and the book ends like this Ruth 4:18 through 22 this then is the family line of Perez Perez was the father of Hezron Hezron the father of Ram Ram the father of Amminadab Amminadab the father of Nashon Nashon the father of Salmon Salmon the father of Boaz Boaz the father of Obed Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Again, what's ringing in your ears, this is the line of the Messiah. The line of David, of Bethlehem and Judah, which leads to the king of kings, continues because of the inclusion of the outsider, of the unloved, unlucky, and unlikely. Ruth shows us that nothing can disqualify us or anyone from inclusion in God's family and participation in God's providence. We cannot be born in the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong heritage, or in the wrong religion, and therefore be unable to follow God. God's welcome is always open to all people. God included Ruth the Moabite into his family, and even the Messiah's family tree. His providence was sufficient for her as she followed God to vulnerable places. May we never count someone out because we don't think they fit the typical mold. This inclusion is so typical for God, so on brand. Even though it's unexpected, we should learn to expect it with God. Scripture repeats the story of God including the outsider over and over. May we trust God's providence is sufficient to sustain us, and may we care for others as we participate in his provision. Ruth points us to the rest of salvation history in which the Messiah of Israel comes, gives himself as a sacrificial atonement for the whole world, and is raised from the dead. As a result, he creates a community of worshipers, both insiders and outsiders, who witness his life to the world. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, 
nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 8, 26 and 28. May we as God's people, clothed with Christ, live as faithful witnesses to the God who includes and provides for the unloved, unlucky, and unlikely outsiders, as we also have been included in and cared for in God's providence by God's grace. Amen. Thank you. I would love to dialogue about any of this or anything that came to your mind as we're talking, if anybody has anything to share. Mm-hmm. And it's neat that that, in the judges, it is dark and we're focusing on poor leadership and the nation as a whole not following God. And here in Ruth, it's a story of really common people, you know, all of them. This would be before the monarchy, so as far as specific dates come, I don't have them on my hand. That, that sounds right. Kristen, what do you know off the top of your head? <laughs> Anyone know specific dates? I think not far from that is probably okay. But I'll close this in a word of prayer. God, thank you for your good word. Thank you for your good character. Continue to draw us into yourself and equip us to live as faithful witnesses to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.